0: part one chapter three of if winter comes by a s m hutchinson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by kirk Ziegler. vaguely without solution of most of the problems that puzzled him and without even definite knowledge of the line along which solution might lie here in these cloisters of another world his own world he paced among his ideas as a man might pace around the dismantled and scattered intricacies of an intricate machine knowing that the parts could be put together and the thing worked usefully not knowing how on earth it could be done this goes in there and that goes in there but how on earth here into these cloisters he dragged the parts of all the puzzles that perplexed him his relations with mabel his sense in a hundred ways as they came up of the odd business that life was, his strong interest in social and industrial problems, and in the political questions from time to time before the public attention. He could imagine assembling the parts, dragging them in, checking them over, slamming the door, and—how on earth, what on earth? There was a key to all these problems. There was a definite way of coordinating the parts of each, but what? he began to have the feeling that in all puzzles though particularly of his own life as he had come to live it but of life in general as it is lived some mysterious part was missing that was as far as he could get he was like a man groping with his hand through a hole in a great door for a key lying on the other side nothing was to be seen through the hole and only the arm to the elbow could get through it not the shape of the key nor its position was known but he was absolutely certain it was there one day he might put his hand on it mabel was two years younger than sabre twenty-five at the time of her marriage and just past her thirtieth birthday when the separate rooms were first occupied her habit of sudden laughter rather loud which sabre first noticed in connection with their differing views on the mean streets visit was rather characteristic of her Her laugh came suddenly, and very heartily, at anything that amused her, and without her first smiling or suggesting by any other sign that she was amused. And it came thus abruptly out of a face whose expression was normally rather severe. Probably of the same mentality was her habit of what Sabre called flying up. She flew up without her speech first warming up. But of her flying up, Unlike her sudden burst of laughter, Saber came to know certain premonitory symptoms in her face. Her face was what he called tightened. In particular, he used to notice a curious little construction of the sides of her nose, rather as though invisible tweezers were pressing it. She had a rather long nose, and this pleased her, for she had once read somewhere that long noses were aristocratic. She stroked her nose as she read. Her complexion was pale, though this was perhaps exaggerated by her coloring, which was dark. Her features were noticeably regular and noticeably refined, though her eyes were the least little bit inclined to be prominent. When Saber married the dean of Tidborough's only daughter, it was said that he had married a good-looking girl, also that he had married a very nice girl. Those were the expressions used. She liked the company of men, and she was much liked by men. The opinion of the garrulous Hapgood may be recalled in this connection. She very much liked the society of women of her own age or older than herself, and she was very popular with such. She did not like girls, married or unmarried. Mabel belonged to that considerable class of persons who, in conversation, begin half of their sentence with, "'And just imagine,' or, "'And only fancy,' or, "'And do you know?' These exclamations, delivered with much excitement, are introductory to matters considered extraordinary. Their users might therefore be imagined somewhat, easily astonished. But they have a compensatory steadiness of mind in regard to much that mystifies other people. To Mabel there was nothing mysterious in birth, or in living, or in death. She simply would not have understood if she had been told there was any mystery in these things. One was born, one lived, one died. What was there odd about it? Nor did she see anything mysterious in the intense preoccupation of an insect, or the astounding placidity of a primrose growing at the foot of a tree. An insect, you killed it. A flower, you plucked it. What's the mystery? Her life was living among people of her own class. Her measure of a man or of a woman was, were they of her class? If they were, she gladly accepted them and appeared to find considerable pleasure in their society. Whether they had attractive qualities, or unattractive qualities, or no qualities at all did not affect her. The only quality that mattered was the quality of being well-bred. She called the classes beneath her own standard of breeding the lower classes. And so long as they left her alone she was perfectly content to leave them alone. In certain aspects she liked them. She liked a civil tradesman immensely, she liked a civil charwoman immensely, and she liked a civil workman immensely. It gave her as much pleasure, real pleasure that she felt in all her emotions, to receive civility from the classes that administered to her class, servants, tradespeople, gardeners, carpenters, plumbers, postmen, policemen, as to meet anyone in her own class it never occurred to her to reckon up how enormously varied was the class whose happy fortune it was to minister to her class and she would not have been the remotest degree interested if any one had told her how numerous the class was it never occurred to her that many of these people had homes and it never occurred to her that the whole of the lower classes lived without any margin at all beyond keeping their homes together or if they stopped working they lost their homes or that they looked forward to nothing beyond working their years, because there was nothing beyond their working years for them to look forward to. Nor would it have interested her in the remotest degree to hear this. The only fact she knew about the lower classes was that they were disgustingly extravagant, and spent every penny they earned. The woman across the green, who did her washing, had six children and a husband who was an agricultural laborer, and earned eighteen and sixpence a week. These eight lived in three rooms, and, if you please, they actually bought a gramophone. Mabel instanced it for three years after she first heard it. The idea of that class of person spending money on anything to make their three rooms lively of an evening was scandalous to Mabel. She heard of the gramophone outrage in 1908, and she was still instancing it in 1912. And those are the people, mind you she said in 1912, that we have to buy these national insurance stamps for. Mabel was not demonstrative. She had no enthusiasm and no sympathies. Enthusiasms and sympathies in other people made her laugh with her characteristic burst of sudden laughter. But it was not, as with some persons, that matters calling for sympathy made her impatient, as very robust people are often intensely impatient with sickness and infirmity. She never would say, I have no impatience with such-and-such, or so-and-so. She had plenty of patience. It was simply that she had no imagination whatsoever. Whatever she saw, or heard, or read, she saw, or heard, or read exactly as the thing presented itself. If she saw a door, she saw merely a piece of wood with a handle and a keyhole. It may be argued that a door is merely a piece of wood with a handle and a keyhole and that is what mabel would have argued but a door is in fact the most intriguing mystery in the world because of what may be on the other side of it and of what goes on behind it to mabel nothing was on the other side of anything she saw and nothing went on behind it a person or creature in pain was to mabel a person or a creature laid up laid up out of action not working properly like a pencil without a point a picture was a decoration in paint and was either a pretty decoration in paint or a not pretty decoration in paint music was a tune and was either a tune or merely music a book was a story and if it was not a story it was simply a book a flower was a decoration poetry such as while the still morn went out with sandals gray was simply writing which obviously had no real meaning whatsoever and obviously well read the thing was not intended to have any meaning. A fine deed was fine precisely in proportion to the social position of the person who performed it. Scott's death at the South Pole, when that was announced in 1913, was fine because he was a gentleman. The disaster of the Colliers entombed in the Welch-Singenid mine, which happened the same year, was sad. How sad! She read the account on the first day, with the paper held wide open, and said, How sad! and turned on to something for which the paper might be folded back at the place and read comfortably. Scott's death she read with the paper folded back at that account. She liked seeing the pictures of Lady Scott and of the Scott's little boy. She read the caption under one of the pictures of the wives and families of the four hundred and twenty-nine colliers killed in the Singanid mine, but not under any of the others. The point, she noted, was that all the women of that class wore those awful cloth caps—the colliers, women just the same as the women in the mean streets of Tidbury Old Town. She was never particularly grateful for anything given to her or done for her, not because she was not pleased and glad, but because she could not invest a gift with no imagination of the feelings of the giver. The thing was a present, just as a pound of bacon was a pound of bacon. You said thank you for the present just as you ate the bacon. What more was there to be said?" She reveled in gossip, that is to say, in discussion with her own ideas of the manners and doings of other people. She thought charity meant giving jelly and red flannel to the poor. She thought generosity meant giving money to someone. She thought selfishness meant not giving money to someone she had no idea that the only real charity is charity of mind, and the only real generosity, generosity of mind, and the only real selfishness, selfishness of mind, and she simply would not have understood if it had been explained to her. As people are judged, she was entirely nice, entirely worthy, entirely estimable. And with that, for it does not enter into such estimates, She had neither feelings of the mind nor of the heart, but only of the senses. All that her senses set before her she either overvalued or undervalued. She was the complete and perfect snob in the most refined and purest meaning of the word. She was much liked, and she liked many. The Penny Green Garden House Development Scheme was begun in 1910. In 1908, the year of the measles and the separated bedrooms, no shadow of it had yet been thrown. It never occurred to anyone that a railway would one day link Penny Green with Tidborough and all the rest of the surrounding world, or that a rail through Tidborough was desirable. Sabre bicycled in, daily to Fortune East and Sabres, and the daily ride to and fro had become a curious pleasure to him. There had once occurred to him, as he rode, and thereafter had persisted and accumulated the feeling that on a daily, solitary passage between Tidborough and Pennygreen he was mysteriously detached from, mysteriously suspended between, the two centers that were his two worlds—his business world and his home world. With its daily recurrence of the thought developed, it enlarged to the whimsical notion that here, on his bicycle on the road, he was magically escaped out of his two worlds not belonging to or responsible to either of his two worlds, which amounted to delicious detachment from all the universe. A mystery aloof, free, irresponsible attitude of mind was thus obtained. It was a condition in which, as one looking down from a high tower on scurrying ant-like human beings, their oddness, their futility, the apparent aimlessness of their excited scurrying became apparent. Hence frequent thought on these rides, on the rather odd thing that life was. He was not in the least aware that so simple, so practical, and so obviously essential a thing as his daily ride, as simple, practical, and obviously essential as getting out of bed in the morning and returning to bed at night, was molding a mind always prone to develop meditative grooves. But it did develop his mind in the extraordinary way in which minds are molded by the most simple habits in this mere matter of conveyance a philosopher might trace back a singularly brutal and callous murder to the moulding into a callous and brutal regard of other people's sufferings rendering into a perfectly gentle mind by the habit of daily travelling to business in london on the top of a motor omnibus it would only need be shown that the gentle mind secured his seat with dignity and comfort at the bus's starting point and daily for years watched with amusement and then with callousness, and so with brutality, the struggles of the unhappy fellow-creatures who fought to assail it at its stopping-places on the way to the city. Mark Saber was not in the least aware of any steadily permeating influence from his sense of detachment on his daily habit of years. But he was influenced. On entering his penny green world on the return home, or on entering his Tudborough office world, On the way out, he had sometimes a curious feeling of descending into this odd affair of life to which he did not really belong. And for the first few moments, while the feeling persisted, he sometimes more or less unconsciously took towards affairs a rather whimsical attitude, as though they did not really matter, an irritating attitude, unpractical. It was sometimes hinted by his partners an irritating attitude. You really are very difficult to understand sometimes, it was often told him by Mabel. This very matter of the bicycle ride, indeed apart from its effect upon his mood, supplied an instance of the kind of thing Mabel found it so difficult to understand in her husband. He made what she called a childish game of it every day on the ride home sabre ceased pedaling at precisely the same point on the slope down into penny green and coasted until the machine came to a standstill within yards of his own gate this point of cessation was never twice in a week at the same spot and sabre found great interest in seeing every day exactly where it would be and by intense wriggling of his front wheel and prodigious feats of balancing squeezing out of the machine's momentum the last possible fraction of an inch there was a magnificent distance record when on one single occasion only he had been deposited plumb in line with his own gate and there was a divertingly lamentable shortage record touched on more than one occasion when he had come to ground plumb in line with the gate of mr fargus his neighbor on that side each of these records though marked by the gates and also more exactly marked by a peg hammered into the edge of the green this was childish and mabel said it was childish when her attention was drawn to the diversion on the day the great distance record was created he came rather animatedly into the kitchen where she happened to be i say what's happened to that small wood-axe is it here Mabel followed the direction of the convulsive start made by Low Jinx and produced a small wood axe from under the dresser, also directing at Low Jinx a glance which told Low Jinx what she perfectly well knew, namely that under the dresser was not the place for the small wood axe. "'Whatever do you want it for, all of a sudden?' Mabel asked. He felt the edge with his thumb. "'Lo?' Mabel's face twitched. He had persisted in the idiotic, indecorous names, and her face always twitched when he used them. "'Lo, do you keep my axe for shopping coal, or what?' And he addressed Mabel. "'I'm getting fat, I think. I don't want the axe to cut lumps off myself, though. "'I'm going to chop a marking peg. I've done a heavyweight world's record on that run on my bike.' "'Oh, that,' said Mabel.' And when he had gone out into the wood yard, Lojink staring after him with the uplifted eyebrows, which both sisters, the glum and the grim, commonly received the master's ways. Mabel said in a gently pained way, which was her admiral method of administering rebukes in the kitchen. The woodshed is the place for the small wood axe, Rebecca. Rebecca promptly unsmirked her smirk. Yes'm. A little later, the sound of loud hammering took Mabel to the gate across the road at the edge of the green sabre was energetically driving the peg in with the back of the axe he was squatting and he looked up highly pleased with himself and his words implied with her come to see it good how's that for an effort eh look here now yesterday i only got as far as there and he walked some paces towards mr fargus's gate and struck his heel in the ground and looked at her smiling absolutely the same conditions mind you no wind and i always start from the top practically at rest and yet always finish up a different jolly funny eh she opened the gate for him what can you see in it she murmured he said oh well but on the following day he was surprised and intensely pleased to see his champion peg gleaming white in the sunshine mabel was in the morning-room sewing hello sewing i say did you paint my peg "'How jolly nice of you!' She looked up. "'Your peg? Whatever do you mean?' "'That distance-record peg of mine.' "'Painted it white, haven't you?' "'No, I didn't paint it.' "'Who the dickens?' "'Well, I'll just wash my hands. Not had tea, have you?' "'Good.' When Lojinks came into his room with hot water— A detail of the perfect appointment of the house, under Mabel's management, was her rule that Rebecca always came to the door for the master's bicycle, handed him the brush for his shoes and trousers, and then took hot water to his room. He asked her, "'I say, Lojinks, did you paint that peg of mine?' Lojinks colored and spoke apologetically. "'Well, I thought it would show up better, sir.' There was a drop of whitewash in—'By Jove, it does! It looks like a regular winning post! Jolly nice of you, Lo!' Two months afterwards the bicycle did the worst on record. This was a surprising affair. The runs had been recently excitingly good, and when Lojinks came out to take the bicycle he greeted her. "'I say, Lojinks, I only got up to Mr. Farkas's gate just now—worst I've ever done!' Lojinks was enormously concerned. Well, I never did! Exclaimed Low Jinks. If those bicycles aren't just the things, you'll want a peg for that, sir. Like you had one for the best. That's an idea, Low. What about painting it? Oh, I will, sir. But he did not mention the new record to Mabel. End of Chapter Three. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah. Voiceover Solutions dot